Hey everyone, I'm Britt and welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. My guest this week is Sean Brackett, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Calgary. We chat about navigating the publication process as a graduate student, feeling like a lone wolf, and the uncertainty about the importance of our research in these unprecedented times. Hi, welcome. Thanks so much for joining my podcast. Uh, Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, Britt. Uh, My name is Sean Brackett. I'm a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Arts, and I am getting my PhD in history. I specialize in the history of education, including the history of students and teachers and some strange things that we know as normal schools. And if you or your grandparents or parents uh, became teachers before about the 1970s, they probably went to something called a normal school. And that term comes from French and back to Latin. And it refers to the idea that we would hold teachers to a standard or a norm of some kind. And that terminology uh, remained in place when we transitioned um, from French into English. So it's, it's been really cool. I love doing the research. And there's a local connection because the U of C's um, education faculty was originally the Alberta Normal School in Calgary, and then it became the U of A Calgary campus, and so we have a local connection. Yeah, I I assume you know that history, but I was about to just say that. Um, Yeah, the whole reason we even have a University of Calgary is because they started a normal school in Calgary, branched out of the University of Alberta. So uh, is that what drew you to studying this topic at the University of Calgary, or is it just like a, a happy little fact? I think that's a happy accident. What brought me here was my supervisor. Like a lot of graduate students, you look for someone who can supervise your research appropriately. And I knew that I wanted a PhD in history. Um, I have an MAD in higher education. And from that, learned to love and appreciate student life and student affairs. And my historical background with my BA turned me gradually toward looking at the history of student life. What was it like to be someone who was in post-secondary way back when? And I was fortunate that my supervisor, who had been in the Faculty of Communication and Culture, um, was moved into the Faculty of Arts when that uh, amalgamation took place. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, I was at the University of Calgary when that amalgamation took place in 2010. I was actually our faculty of humanities representative in the students union. And I was the last faculty of humanities representative. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice little uh, connection to history. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting when like new people come to the university of Calgary and you're like, Oh yeah, well I graduated from these faculties that no longer exist. uh, And now it's all amalgamated to one, but that's really interesting. So, um, like, what's your specific research question around, or research questions, because we usually have more than one, around normal schools? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my research questions involve uh, student life across international and subnational borders. Um, my MED thesis was written on a comparison of student life at the Colorado State Normal School and the University of Colorado. Huh. And um, it was a really fun project that got me into the primary sources and the archival research for the first time. My MA thesis, which I completed here at the U of C, was about Alberta normal schools 
but I was focused just on that kind of institution and not comparing to universities or colleges. And Alberta had three normal schools, Calgary, Edmonton, and Camrose. And um, the one in Edmonton is now the um, education building on the main campus. The one in Camrose later became a long-term care home across the street from St. Mary's Hospital and the Camrose Museum. So it was very easy to find. Um, but my focus on student life remains. And so now I'm comparing normal school student cultures across Western Canada and the Western United States. Um, for me, that looks like British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, and then Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon. And I'm interested primarily to see, was there a student culture that was shared across those boundaries? And I think we have some good evidence that there, at least so far, my preliminary results suggest that there is a substantial amount of shared cultural markers um, coming from, in part, uh, the nature of the teaching discipline in the early 20th century, as well as the demographics. We have a lot of women at these institutions, especially compared to universities. We have a lot more women faculty members, and they're all working under this rubric of an idealized teacher model. So I'm really diving into the student-produced documents, like yearbooks and student newspapers, as ways to understand their culture. What were they talking about? What were they doing? And what was important to them? That's really interesting. And I imagine there would be some sort of that consistency across, because my understanding is that uh, behavior of these students was also tightly controlled. Um, as you said, with this idealized teacher model, uh, where, yeah, you're expected to behave a certain way, dress a certain way. Um, I mean, we know that a lot of teachers couldn't continue teaching once they got married or, or once they had children. And so um, having so many restrictions, be really interesting to see how that played out on student life. Yeah, and actually, this will say, this sounds like such a, a, a plug, but <laughs> I recently published an article on, on uh, student life uh, specifically related to um, rules, regulations, and rebellion. And you can find it. It's open access. It's in the journal Historical Studies in Education in the spring 2020 edition, and it's called Tripwires and Whiskey Tenors. And what I found was that students in the Alberta normal schools during the Great Depression um, definitely faced pretty severe restrictions on their conduct with two major caveats. One, students did not always accept that. And in many ways, we have evidence of many minor rebellions and several major rebellions. Oh, wow. One of which is captured by the title Tripwires and Whiskey Tenors. There's, um, we have evidence from oral histories and survey data um, that was gathered in the 1980s by an education professor named Bob Patterson. And this person shared the anecdote that their landlord was in communication with the faculty at the normal school, which was normal for this time period. Um, the authority of the faculty extended into private spaces. Yeah. Um, and so this landlord had apparently put a, a wire across the back step so that if you came in after hours, it would trigger some sort of alarm or bell. It would alert the landlord. But um, this respondent, who is a woman, said that our boyfriends couldn't come over, so we just went outside and spent time with them. And 
I find that to be really interesting, not only because of the rejection of uh, landlord authority in this way, but also the fact that she was a young woman doing this, which would have carried a very different consequence if she were found out. So, Absolutely. Wow. I'm going to go look for that. That sounds really interesting. Um, I want to ask you, what? how did you find that process of publication as a graduate student? Because I know that's one thing that a lot of graduate students struggle with is this idea of that we need to publish, we should publish, but how do you actually go about doing that and how do you get published while still a graduate student? Yeah, uh, that was really hard for me. Um, and by that, I mean the conceptualizing the process itself, mm -hmm. thinking and developing the confidence to look metaphorically into the eyes of an editorial board and say, I have done the work. Right. My, my research is original, my thoughts and analysis and analyses are original, and they are important to our field. Mm -hmm. That was really hard for me um, because I was still holding on to that undergraduate mindset, I think, where the student looks to the teacher for the answers. Right. And in graduate school, you learn that even the teachers don't have the answers all the time. Yeah. <laughs> And then you also learn over time that sometimes you're the person with the answers because you're the person with the question. Mm. So for me, it was hard. The hardest part was getting to a place of confidence to be able to say, I can do this. I am not an imposter <laughs> because I think that one of the common denominators of graduate school experience is feeling like you're not worthy. And um, I did how I approached it um, logistically was creating the manuscript out of research I had conducted but not published. So for right. me, that was my MA thesis led into the article manuscript, but taking a 150-page manuscript and trying to edit it down to something that was about 35 pages, I believe, was a really tough process. And yeah. I used the people within my department to help me. So and other advanced graduate students whose work I had read and trusted and faculty members who had mentored me. Now, I did not send them the manuscript itself, but I would send snippets or I would ask for general advice on approaching them. And my supervisor helped. He read um, my entire manuscript before sending it off and gave me some suggestions, but it was my work. Yeah. And going into that process is scary. When you click the submit button, <laughs> Because there's always the possibility that you will be uh, rejected. And yeah. even then, the way I'm saying that, you will be rejected. That's not true. They're not rejecting me, the person. They would be rejecting the submission. But it sometimes feels that way. And I really feared peer review. Because I had heard all the horror stories of reviewer two. I was very fortunate. All three of my reviewers were tough, but their comments were grounded in care and constructivism. Mm. They saw potential and gave me some markers and some suggestions on how I could get there. So mm -hmm. the process was tough. And for me, you know, when I get something that's hard to read, I'll have an emotional reaction and then want to put it aside 
and then a week later come back to it. Oh, but yeah. this time I just forced myself to read it, to, <laughs> to, to read the comments, to feel the emotions, and then remember, this is not the end of my life. It's not the end of my career. It's, it's just a process to help you focus your thinking, refine your methods, and produce something that is a better contribution to the field overall. Absolutely. I think that's such a great way to think about that. Um, I also ended up being able to publish something out of my master's thesis. Um, but before that, I tried to publish uh, like a conceptual paper that I had written for a course. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the feedback I got was not as helpful. <laughs> Where reviewer one it was very much like grammatical, change some headings, move some things around. Reviewer two was... Um, much more like significantly move things around and then reviewer three was like why did you waste your time writing this um these are all the things that you need to change so i actually ended up deciding not to publish that paper um because the changes that were required were just too much and it would not have been on the timeline that the journal needed so Mm -hmm. i decided i would kind of put that aside put that back on the shelf and i still haven't pulled it back out but maybe eventually i will but uh uh, then yeah, then focused on publishing out of my master's, which was much more tangible than than a conceptual piece. So mm-hmm. um, I think yeah, the writing process in itself is also really tricky. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. When you're writing, what what helps you keep going when you're writing? Oh, it helps me keep going when I'm writing. That's a really good question. I haven't thought too much about that. What keeps you going? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll I'll, I'll accept the reflection of the question. Um, I think for me, something that I learned in this process of publishing was writing is thinking. Yeah, yeah. I'm the type of person who, you know, over time I've learned that I will think and overanalyze and process and all those different things, cognitive overload and then at the very last minute I'll put it onto paper and write it out mm. I mean, I've written a 15 page paper in two hours before it was wow. probably hot, hot garbage <laughs> because this was undergrad I do not recommend doing that because of the level of stress involved but I find that I do a lot of that that thinking beforehand and then I put it out onto paper and submit it without revisions or editing oh, wow. And you can get away with that so far, but grad school was the, okay, this is where this is not going to be acceptable anymore. And yeah. so in that process, I learned that when I'm typing out things, sometimes I just need to type stream of consciousness, what exactly I am thinking in my mind at the moment, because it's not permanent. Like what I put on the page can change. And I yeah. expected the very first draft to be the final draft instead of something where you learn and change over time. Yeah. And that really helped me because I thought, oh, I can put this out and give it to someone and they will edit it and revise it and give it back to me. And then I can make changes. Yeah. It was really freeing for me. Yeah. I think something along those same lines. So initially like what keeps me going, I think like my research is very pragmatic in the sense of, it's going to help someone in the classroom or at least that's my intention. And so 
when I'm writing, I think, okay, well, I need to share this finding or I need to share this idea because it's going to help someone somewhere. And that kind of keeps me going in that sense. Um, but the process I'm, I'm now following more is very much that terrible first draft idea. Because uh, I really, I honestly really struggle with being too concise. Like you say your master's was 150 pages. Mine was 75. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I really have a really hard time with being too concise. And I, I've literally never met another graduate student with this problem. Uh, I feel like I'm the only one, <laughs> but I really do struggle with that. So I struggle with thinking that I have to fill the 10 pages or 20 pages when I first sit down. And so what I now do is I like write a terrible first draft, which is usually an outline. Like I do really put in headings mm. and I use like the heading feature a lot in Microsoft Word because I <laughs> will have a thought for the introduction and then I'll have a thought for the conclusion and I can jump between them really easily that way. Um, but then I basically just kind of like throw out kind of, here's what I'm thinking for this section. Here's what I want, what I want to say. And then I go back and, and kind of fill in the holes. Um, and then some of the feedback I got from my master's supervisor was really helpful too. Like she would read through and be like, so what, why, how did you get to here? Um, and so I've learned to be that reviewer to myself. So when I go through, it's like, okay, you just jump from point A to point B how did you get to those two places uh, and trying to flesh things out a lot more, but that's, that's my big struggle. So yeah, I'm writing, working on a proposal for a conference and it's a 2000 word pa paper and I'm like, no problem. Like that's only four pages. Like I can easily <laughs> get something in four pages. So. That's as a historian. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, oh. I, and I think like I, I'm learning to frame it as a gift. <laughs> because I, I also remember in first year where we were told, oh, you can only give a 15-minute presentation. And I, they're like, oh, we know that's really hard, but it's really, it's really good to be concise and to learn how to be concise. And I'm like, filling 15 minutes? Like, I just get to the point. <laughs> so I've learned a lot more about like how to take people along the thought process with me. Um, but also that being concise, it can be a gift because a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and so... Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So yeah, often my papers are very, very short. <laughs> I was really excited to have the opportunity to write a paper on the historical parallels between the 1918 influenza pandemic mm. and the current pandemic for the U of C School of Public Policy. Oh, cool. And it one of the most challenging things was consolidating and synthesizing so much historical scholarship into about 1200 words which was apparently you know their normal length is 500 to a thousand or something along those lines because the school of public policy puts out policy briefs yeah and or communique i think is the name of the um type of publication yeah and they they, get, they granted me more words because of what i was doing and it was still so challenging to try to balance my art my central argument with the necessary context right and at least for my discipline the context is almost everything yeah so if you don't have enough space to adequately contextualize your argument then it's it's weak and it's not helpful to a lot of people so i imagine it differs by discipline too i think it does and i think um for me too i 
don't like that that idea of context strikes me because I think I don't think about context maybe enough or um or I think it doesn't have as much of an impact because so I've taught um in Africa England Canada and I've taught in junior high high school and higher ed and I often get asked well like what's it like teaching it must be so different I'm like well, it's, it's really not like the administrators were different and you kind of have to deal with the administrators. Um, but kids are kids and students are students and learning is learning. Um, and, and so for me, I never saw context play out a whole Mm -hmm. lot in my teaching experience. And so I think that's probably why I skip over context a bit in my writing or in my, my research as well, because I also get asked, uh, like I'm doing my research in higher ed, but there's a lot of transference to K to 12 as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm asked about, oh, it must be difficult to transfer. It's like, well, no, not really. Like, it's a learning process. Feedback is a learning process. And we do this all the time in all sorts of contexts. Um, and it's easily transferable. But maybe I take that transferability for granted and need to explain that more. <laughs> the historian in me is like, yes, contextualize. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, teacher, jump, jump to the end and tell me, like, how to do this in my classroom <laughs> and how it's going to fix my classroom. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you came to Canada to do your master's. I did. Was it your supervisor that brought you to Canada or were there other factors there as well? Well, this is kind of a, it's, it's an interesting little story. It's one of those stories that reminds me of historical contingency or the idea that things hinge on other things and our available decisions change as a result of other people's decisions and actions. Mm -hmm. I had never considered Canada, whether moving to or really honestly thinking about before about 2010. Right. And I went, I I had the, the pleasure of going to a conference in Switzerland in 2011. Oh, wow. And I, I worked, I was a grad student at Texas Tech University which at the time had research and travel funding for graduate students. So I was, was really lucky. Uh, but I went out there and had a great time. I presented on residential learning communities and got to meet colleagues from literally around the world. And some of them, a number of them were Canadian. Mm. And due to a, an accident with my uh, phone's alarm clock, I overslept what was supposed to be an afternoon nap and joining other people to take the train from Switzerland into Milano, Italy for like someone's birthday. I was so mad when I woke up because I couldn't get a hold of anyone. And it just, you know, you over, you oversleep a nap and you're an adult and it just, it's embarrassing. (laughs) Right. But one of the uh, Canadian delegates um, had not gone. And so she and I spent the next few hours just talking And at the time, she was the student services director at McGill. And it it, it was one of those moments that just opened my eyes that as an American, I had never really given Canada any deep thought. I feel like that's very common for Americans. (laughs) Yes. I unfortunately think you're right. Um, And the more... You know, I left the conference, I came back, and then I took a job in California, and it just, the little bug wouldn't leave. Mm. I started doing more research, and then I went to a conference in uh, St. Catharines in 2012, and then I went to the next year's conference in Montreal, and 
started to develop this interest. And then it became a historical interest because mm -hmm. I learned, oh, there were normal schools, not just in the US, they were also yeah. in Canada and Mexico and actually most of the world. Yeah. Thanks colonialism. Um, <laughs> that was sarcasm, by the way. Um, and yeah, so I came here uh, for school and I have learned so much about the country of my birth because nothing, nothing gets you to learn about your home like leaving it. And um, actually about a month and a half ago, I became a Canadian citizen. I was going to say, and now you're here to stay. Congratulations. Yeah. And of course, I'm wearing a Blue Jays hat right now, but it's just... And a Canada sweatshirt. It's true. This sweatshirt that I'm wearing is from Roots, of course. Of and course. I bought it five years ago at a Canada Day sale. It is the most comfortable thing I've ever worn. So I wear it a lot. And it's not, it's not for the purposes of the Americans who go backpacking and then put a Canadian flag on it. I'm not trying to hide my nationality, but it's just comfortable. And now I guess it represents yeah. one of my nationalities. Yeah. Um, and I mean, people like go to countries all the time. Like I'm sure I have a sweatshirt, some of that says Germany or whatever, right? So totally. Yeah. yeah. And I so, worked at Roots in undergrad and I can attest that they are very comfortable. <laughs> Did you get a good discount though? Uh, I believe so. I can't remember. I think like chapters, uh, was the best mm. discount. And then was it? Cha yeah. Chapters was pretty good. Or maybe, yeah, I think Roots was something like 40%. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's a good discount. Yeah. It was a good discount. Chapters was also pretty good. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I, I came here to do the MA, and then I uh, stayed for the PhD, and hopefully within the next year and a half, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll complete the academic credentialing process. Yeah, that's always the hard part. Like, you can't ever really ask someone, like, post-candidacy for PhD. It's like, oh, how long, how much longer do you have? And it's like, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I am so thankful and fortunate and lucky and blessed and all those things because I completed almost all of my archival research last year. Oh. So the timing was good in terms of like, I have most of my documents and I'm in the process of reading and analyzing them. Yeah. Because I, I don't envy the, the students like history students or lab-based sciences where you, you can't be there in person. That's really hard. Yeah, it's it's really tough. I was in the middle, or I guess like a two thirds of the way through data collection uh, in March when campus closed, and my data collection was supposed to end end of April, and I was doing interviews. So oh, no. yeah, luckily I was able to pivot quite quickly to move to um, uh, online like video conference focus groups and uh, send students questions by email, which they were quite responsive to. Students did not really want a video conference, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it worked out okay. And actually like, our ethics review board was, was really quick about getting those changes through, so. Oh, good for them. That was really lucky. Yeah, yeah, that was really lucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so now I'm also in that. I have all my data and I'm in the analysis phase. Um, but it's exciting because as I'm going through I'm working with like five instructors from different programs who are talking about how 
like they're basically trying to implement different interventions or changes to how they either provide feedback or provide opportunities for feedback or most of them actually had something they were already doing or wanted to try and they just mm -hmm. it kind of created this community of practice at the end where we got to talk about how we were doing feedback and whatnot and uh so that was really exciting because i'm looking at things i'm like oh like they like is this really the way they think or is this just like what came out or um, like, oh, there's a disconnect between what students think feedback is for and what instructors think students think feedback is for. Uh, so <laughs> We're climbing up the meta ladder. Yeah, yeah, this, this, there's really this theme that's coming out of like um, instructors' perceptions of students. And, and it's really interesting and in how that might cause some interference with the efficacy of feedback, so. Yeah, yeah I wish sometimes that I could do that kind of research, but as as a historian of the late 19th and early 20th century, all of my subjects are deceased, or yes. very few are alive. Yeah. And finding them is very, very difficult. So I'm working with written sources primarily, and sometimes people write things and you think, were you kidding? I think you're kidding. And, you know, and a source like a newspaper, it's it's never just news. Even in the early 20th century, it's news and advertisements and editorials. And sometimes they put in jokes. Yeah. Just yeah. Like between lines. And sometimes those are really obvious and sometimes they're not. So it's, it's sometimes I wish I could just ask, you know, phone them like, hey, what, what the heck? Yeah. And I mean, even now there's stuff like that comes out in the surveys that I do or in the focus groups and it's like, okay, now that I'm looking at this like two or three months later, I didn't have a question about this then, but now I'm questioning it. So that idea of, do I go back and ask them or do I just kind of go ahead with it? So. Yeah. What is there, is there like a, a disciplinary standard for that kind of survey question where you could go back? Yeah, so what I'm planning to do with the instructors actually is uh, basically they're going to do what's called like theme checking. And so I'm going to take what I'm saying, these are my findings, and I'm going to take those to that group and get them to comment on it and, and see if they agree or disagree or whatnot um, so that it, it's authentic to that group. Um, because I did my surveys with students anonymously, I can't do that. Um, right. But with the instructors, I am able to do that. So, or I did student focus groups as well. So same thing with the student focus groups. I could go back and do that. Um, students tend not to be very responsive though, once it's kind of said and done. So we'll see. I'm going to try to do that with them as well. Some theme checking, but, uh, but we'll see what comes out. But these instructors are, are pretty engaged. Um, and so I should be able to, to do some theme checking with them and get a little bit of feedback on that and, and see if, they're like, oh no, like they've all seen the transcripts, so they know like what they've said, but they haven't yet seen my interpretation of what they've said, so, or gotcha. the way that I bring the different pieces of what they've said together, so, mm -hmm. yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a lot of fun. I love grad school. Um, <laughs> uh, but speaking of loving grad school, grad school can also be really hard. Uh, so what would you say has been, like we talked about publication, but what would you say has been uh, like your biggest challenge in graduate school? I think there's the pre-COVID answer and then there's the COVID answer. <laughs> uh, 
Um, let's do both. <laughs> let's do both. Okay. So I think the pre-COVID answer is lone wolf syndrome. Mm. And again, this may vary by discipline, but in history, we often work solo. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, it's just so individualized. Your research projects, your research questions, your methodologies, your colleagues from your field may not be at your institution. So you can't just pull them aside for a coffee. And I think for me, it was working alone when I like working with people. And I think I work well with people, but it was, it went from one extreme of a completely team oriented project to 95% being on my own. Um, that was, that was tough uh, because I find a lot of motivation in external responsibility mm-hmm. and less <laughs> motivation from internal responsibility. So um, that's the pre COVID answer, but the COVID answer is the worry that what I am doing is a waste of time, mm. not for me personally, but for society at large. Right. And this is actually a COVID police brutality and police reform and race relations plus economic, you know, um, the growing economic inequalities, you know, that's, that's the world that we're in right now. And I really struggle and this is not something I've answered mm-hmm. to my own satisfaction, but if I want to do good in the world, is this doing that good? And sometimes I think I just want to leave because I could be doing better things elsewhere. I, you know, not, not necessarily financially for me, but just doing something that helps someone else. And that's, that's an ongoing question for me. It's really hard. Now at the point that I am in my program, most people have given me the advice of, I understand where you're coming from, <laughs> but finish yeah. and then have this crisis. They never put it that bluntly to be fair to them. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, I understand that yeah. and I'm getting through it, but it is slower because of so much that is going on and my own, desires as a teacher right now because I'm teaching the introductory Canadian history class. Mm. Well, from Confederation to the present day, that is an ongoing issue that my students are talking about that they're living with. I mean, I have, I have students in Hong Kong. I have students in Minneapolis or the Minneapolis Mm. area. Like they're dealing with those things. And so I'm trying to help them and also myself work through what it means to be doing an academic program of study at a time of unrest and uncertainty. Yeah, and I think from what I'm seeing, like I'm a part of a couple different um, graduate student writing communities, some that meet on Zoom and some that meet on Slack. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way, but haven't articulated it in that manner. Like they just feel useless because they're not able to actually make an impact on COVID research. 
uh, or not able to change things in their communities, but they're also not making any progress on their own research because they're kind of frozen in this idea of, well, my work doesn't really matter. So why am I putting time into it? But there's, they're not able to help in any other way. So I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm seeing that a lot and you could tell like it started with the pandemic and everything of like, well, the future has no certainty. You can't plan, like, don't even bother making plans, (laughs) throw out all your plans. Um, (laughs) And, and you could see a lot of us grappling with that idea. And then here came, uh, I mean, I don't want to call another wave, but the police brutality, it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gotten better. It hasn't gotten worse. Um, or maybe, well, I would say maybe it's gotten worse, but our ignorance of it has gotten worse, I would say, because it's not new and yet we still continue to ignore it. So that's gotten worse. Um, and then like all of these other things that are happening, how, yeah, how do you continue in a program that might not have a long-term impact or um, isn't going the way you planned? Uh, and I know a lot of people I've seen are talking about this idea of mourning, mourning 2020 in a sense of mourning, like all the things you had planned, whether it was um, personal plans or professional plans or um, all those sorts of things. And then um, I'm working a lot on like forgiving my past self and not, not allowing that to, to influence my future self in the sense that, okay, well today I made no progress. Um, but that doesn't impact tomorrow or today I felt really useless, but that's not going to impact tomorrow. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of people and not just graduate students going through that, uh, that (laughs) existential crisis, um, of what does, what impact or what benefit do I bring? Uh, but I think there's a lot of people going through that. I, you mentioned the, the, the idea of mourning 2020. And I've thought about that too, because of our hopes and expectations. But what grounds me from that is the experience of my friends, my Mm -hmm. friends of color. And that while I may be, coming to terms with some aspects of the social unrest and the weaponized, you know, aspects of our society, whether it's policing or the justice system or schooling, those are experiences that my friends of color have lived with their entire lives. And I've heard them and I've believed them from the start, of course, but I think this summer has been a, a turning point for me and what I am mourning is the fact that it took me so long mm. to get there and to take it more seriously than I had. And so that is something that for me, I am, you know, learning and trying to do my best, but also the, the realization that, come on, Sean, you're an academic. You have a degree in student affairs. You should have been here before it should not have taken Mm. you you know x y and z or x y and z uh to get (laughs) to get here so yeah and i think i mean yeah it's a real place of privilege to be able to say well i can mourn 2020 because 2021 will be better um and i think it's also being a white woman in canada is very different than being in the u.s or being in other parts of the world 
um, where, yeah, for me, the biggest thing is, is the pandemic. We don't see, I mean, we do see police brutality in Canada, but not to the same extent. And we do see racism in Canada. Um, and we need to do better, a lot better with our indigenous populations. Uh, and yet like those things don't affect me on a daily basis. Right. And yeah. And then how do we allow those things to affect us on a daily basis, but not allow it to take it down, take us down with it, if that makes sense. Oh, um, do you mean like the, the weight of that? Yeah. And, and the, the feeling of, well, this is how things are and I'm not directly affected by it, but I can't fix it. And so like, why am I bothering with anything if that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think there's that feeling. And I mean, like we recently just saw it, I'm sure you're aware of the story um, where a former University of Calgary employee um, has been arrested for a potential hate crime, um, completely unprovoked. Uh, and the response to that, um, but I was able to see hope in the response and the fact that so many people spoke out and so many people were appalled and frustrated and disgusted by what happened. It was not allowed to just be brushed under the rug. And so that gave me hope. Um, but then to have a friend of mine who is Asian to then say, well, like this happens all the time. Like, don't pat yourselves on the back because this one person got arrested uh, was also really interesting. So I think, yeah, I think we're in this interesting time of how do we hope for the future more in the past and do something about the present? Ooh, I like that. <laughs> you should write that down, put it on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was thinking as you were talking about the aspect of hope and that I don't remember who said this, please forgive me, but we need hope. We also need courage. Yeah. Courage to act. Yes. Um, because I think we got a lot of hope with president Obama. Yes. Did we get action? Sort of, but I think we need a broader base of it. Yeah. And I get some of that hope and courage from my own students right now. And it helps me feel motivated. It gives me energy and it gives me purpose to think that what I'm teaching them, not only the content of history, the dates and the names and events and phenomena, but also the skills of history. How do we seek mm -hmm. out information and evidence to build arguments from and how do we know that that evidence is credible what do we do when our uncle on facebook shares something that is blatantly untrue or if we see something funny and emotional on tiktok how do we verify the what's you know what's going on and that's where i get some of that sense of purpose right now as a historian mm -hmm. that our skills are not limited to talking about dead people yeah and I, I think, too, there's a lot of power in, in being a teacher at whatever level in that school and education has not always been a safe place and has often been quite a violent, destructive place for many people. 
and how can we harness the power of education, as you were saying, to help students, one, have a place where they feel they can be who they are Mm -hmm. and without judgment, without consequence, and then also learn the skills and tools they need to then go out and and do all those things that we hope to be able to do. Um, like for me, that was like when I was asked, oh, like, why did you want to be a teacher? It was always, well, I always wanted to be so many things. <laughs> so then through being a teacher, I don't have to go do all those things. I can then empower others to do those things. Mm-hmm. So hopefully former students of mine are doctors, lawyers, dentists, all those sorts of things, right? In the same way that um, I aim and hope to be uh, critical of, of media and media literate and information literate. And then by teaching those skills, you then, it's like one of those old, uh, um, was like phone fan outs <laughs> where you then, uh, do you remember doing those? Or like before we had an email and there was information to get out, one person would call three people and then the next person would call three people. Oh, okay. Yes. I am now understanding. I did not hear the term. Oh, a phone fan out. Okay. That's new to me. Okay, I've so heard just called phone tree. A fo- I've never heard it called a phone tree. So okay. Yeah. It's a bit of cross-cultural exchange. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this idea that you can then disseminate skills and disseminate information and, and those sorts of things in a way that you can't just by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, when, when you talk about the power of education, I'm totally with you. It makes me reflect on the responsibility that educators and society put on education. And it makes me mm. a little worried sometimes because we expect educators to, to fix everything about society. And hmm. yeah, that's, I, I don't think that's helpful. <laughs> I think we need to address, you know, we need to train police officers differently and hold them accountable. And same with social workers who mm-hmm. were not always living up to their ideals. I mean, many commu- marginalized communities have tough relationships with social workers for good reason. Yep. You know, we, um, I mean, I know this is a little off topic, so feel free to cut it, but <laughs> I worry sometimes about education that it's like, that's going to be the silver bullet that saves us all. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and that reminds me of, I've often thought, like, I finished teacher's college uh, when I was 24. And so my first teaching job when I was 24, and I often think of, like, the things that I perpetuated because of how I was taught or how, how I learned or just the narrow experience I had at the time. Um, and then now the way I know I would teach now that I'm in my thirties. And I often think that like 24 year olds should not be allowed to be teachers. <laughs> like, and I know like there's, there's a million amazing young teachers out there. Uh, but from my own experience, I think that like, being a teacher should only be allowed to be like a second career. <laughs> like you should be allowed to go into teaching. Like once you have all this world experience or all this like other experience, and then you can go teach um, versus, I mean now. I like kids. Yeah. I like kids or I have a high GPA uh, because really 
right now, all you need to get into teacher's college or a teaching program. I call it teacher's college because my parents are from Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, to get into a, an education program, all you need now is a high GPA in Canada, pretty much. So I think like there's a lot of things that we could fix there. Um, and also in terms of equity and like, we know those with high GPAs are not necessarily the best teachers. And those with high GPAs are not like, that's not a representative pool of society or of who would be amazing teachers. Um, like just cause I was always top of my class. Like my partner was also a teacher and, um, he was not always at the top of his class. And I know he was a better teacher than I was. Um, mm. I know cause his lesson plans were just like, this is amazing. How do you, how do you do this? Uh, but uh, yeah, thinking of this, like how access to programs then perpetuates certain things and, um, and who gets into programs and how we're then trained in those programs and all those sorts of things. And I know a lot of people in pre-service teacher education don't like to call it teacher training, but uh, <laughs> I'll call it teacher training. Um, but yeah, there's, I'm, I'm also going off topic now, but there's all of that kind of intertwined as well. But uh, yes, teacher education reform uh, should be a second career and you need life experience. <laughs> there's even in my own research, relates to this somewhat yeah. in terms of access to programs and how t- pre-service teacher education uh, perpetuates particular models of teachers and curricula, et cetera. Absolutely. Like these normal school student bodies, 99 to 100% white as far as I can tell. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. Mean, throughout the period, I am struggling to locate people who are not white. Yeah. And that's very difficult and it would be many, many hundreds of hours in the census trying to identify all these people. But, you know, it's it's a blindingly white um, occupation mm-hmm. in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And still now, I don't know the demographics of teachers across Canada right now because I don't think Canada does a great job of some of its statistics in various professions or institutions like the university of Calgary. But, um, you know, we, we are, I think education as a whole is very white. Yeah. And I mean, you could look at, um, like, you know, our institution does publish, uh, gender statistics for every program. And, um, I think also like international student, I'm not sure how much they break it down by country, uh, but that's only international students. It doesn't really tell you much about race. But if you look at male participation in teacher education programs, um, like it's still a very female um, profession. And I think that also perpetuates certain things where males don't see themselves in the profession or males don't even see themselves in caring professions at all, whether it's nursing or education or social work. Um, where we still see it female dominated. And that's also problematic in terms of how the profession then trains each other and then continues on. So looking at race and gender and socioeconomic background, um, because socioeconomic background is also going to have an impact on your GPA uh, and whether you get into these programs. Um, Yeah, so all of these things are definitely intertwined. And uh, like when you say it's like, I, I don't think it's, probably quite as white anymore um but it it certainly is just as female Mm -hmm. wow yeah all these things come full circle um 
So uh, with the lone wolf, um, I imagine that probably also got a little bit worse with COVID and, and working from home and not even being around the university. Um, did you find any good tactics both while you were on campus or while you're, you've been at home working that have helped you combat that feeling? Pre-COVID, my strategy was to go into campus every single day, mm. even if I didn't need to get a specific book. And I would either go into my office in the history department, and I'm fortunate that my department has enough space that all of the graduate students have a desk in a sort of a shared office space yeah. in our department. So um, I use that a lot. And the other times I would go up to the grad commons on the um, fifth floor of the Taylor Library. Yep. Which I loved. Whoever did that and set that up, kudos, because I love that. Um, well, I, I loved it <laughs> when I was able to access it. Hopefully, yeah. again soon. And during COVID, that's been trickier. I have not found something great other than making sure to do something out of doors every single day, hopefully multiple times a day, trying to set up my office so that I have my as many books as I grabbed before everything got locked down. And I also have, and Britt will be able to see this, but you won't. So I have this like um, other, I'm trying to point out this yeah. bookshelf thing. Yeah. And I have one of those little mats that you buy from Home Depot to stand on. Oh, yeah. And then I use this as like a, a desk, a standing oh, desk. Oh, like a standing desk. Nice. Yeah. And then I got a whiteboard, which I then doodle and put ideas on. Yeah. So that helps me you know, change up my surroundings as much as possible. Um, That's a great idea. Yeah. And that I have a similar bookshelf and I'm actually thinking right now, hmm, how could I turn that into a standing desk? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, this bookshelf that's behind me is perpendicular to the wall. Mm. So it's, uh, well, it's better for teaching because if I'm on camera, then students aren't seeing people in the hallway behind me, like my roommate or the dog. Right. And, um, but I think it's been, it's been tough to get through, honestly. And I understand the lockdown fatigue that a lot of people have, but yeah. wear your mask, wear your mask, people. If you're listening to this, this is a sign, wear your mask. <laughs> it's not that hard. It doesn't, it doesn't lower the amount of oxygen you're getting. You're fine. Well, yeah, so I completely agree, but you know what? I actually did have a mask that I found very hard to breathe with. And then I was just like, I found a different mask. I'm like, it's not all masks. It's just this one crappy mask. <laughs> it would like suck in when you breathe, when I would breathe. Ooh, so yeah. like, it, it was very suffocating. And I was like, I would get hot. I'm like, I can't do this. Like what? And then I just found one that was much more structured. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's the mask. It's not masks. Just it's the, the mask. nuance that you learn in graduate school. <laughs> yeah. If one, if one method is not working, you just try a different method. Yeah. But I think, you know, um, one thing that has helped, and this wasn't my idea, this was a good friend of mine um, who actually wrote her PhD thesis on dropping out of PhD programs. Um, oh. And it was, it was really good and interesting work. I loved yeah. um, that she did that. But she invited me to a weekly, like, trivia night on Zoom. Nice. And so creating the regular traditions as much as you can. Yeah has been helpful for me 
but I won't, you know, I won't pretend like everything's normal because it's not, and it's not, it's not ideal. And I hope that institutions, I mean, from executive leaders all the way down to program coordinators find, find ways to recognize the situation we're in for undergrads, grads, sessionals, early career researchers, and not just benefiting those who are already tenured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those who are tenured need to use that safety net uh, to speak up and support others and change the system that has benefited them. Yes. And I've had private conversations with people in my department and um, other people on, you know, what is going on. And so I try to be patient because I know that in institutions like universities, change is hard. And slow. Even when there is the will, yeah. there is often the process. Yeah. And, and there's often public relations fears about, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so I'm trying to be patient, but yeah. I am also in a place of privilege. I yeah. am now, I moved from international student to citizen in probably what is the fastest possible time period. I got citizenship in six years or, you know, international student, permanent resident citizen in yeah. six years. That's really fast. And I only got that because I had a full-time job in the States in my current career. I mm-hmm. speak English natively. I have a middle-class background. I'm white, you know, all those different things. So, yeah. you know, as I'm trying to use my privilege to improve my teaching and help my students, I really hope that uh, the tenured faculty are doing more than writing letters. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll bring it to a close on that note because I think that's that's really powerful is that those who, who do have the, the ability to make change are those who are in power and those who have had the system work well for them. They may not be incentivized to make the change, um, but they're the ones who can do it. So, yeah. yeah, I hope so. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And uh, it's been such a fantastic conversation. I'm glad we could connect. And uh, yeah, I hope we'll see each other in person soon, but not too soon. Because yeah, let's just get over this pandemic. <laughs> Agreed. Thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation and a lot of. I think good ideas, hopefully good ideas, um, but it was just nice to connect and uh, hopefully we'll get to see you again soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.